Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this banner lecture. And for those of you who are part of the conference, uh, delighted to see so many who are. And for those of you who can stay for the rest of the afternoon who didn't know about it or haven't registered yet, it is a free event, but you do have to register. <clears throat> Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that kind word for the endowment. We, uh, we try so very hard to be innovative and creative in our grant making, and this is certainly among the more innovative and creative partnerships we have ever forged. And I have to tell you, for those of you who are partisans of the Virginia Historical Society, it is a grand group to work with. Just the most wonderful people uh, have made our contribution of materials and our ongoing relationship just an easy and very, very productive one. Uh, starting four years ago when we started donating all kinds of stuff that I didn't know what to do with. It turns out historians might find it really valuable. And so <laughs> it was a win-win situation for us both. And now the idea of a conference, which some of us are hoping will be so successful that we would like to see it continue in some form or another. But we'll see about that. Um, the field of environmental history examines the physical impact of humans on the environment, how we use nature and how we think about nature. The ecological richness of the area we now call Virginia uh, has served thousands of people before it became Virginia. And so the subject of early Virginia Indians uh, is a fascinating one. Um, and there's no one living person who can better tell that story um, than our speaker today. We're very fortunate to have Dr. Helen Roundtree, whose presentation today marks the sixth time she has spoken at the Historical Society. That is more than any other speaker in the 24 years that the Historical Society has held these noontime talks. Those of you who have heard her speak before know what I'm talking about, and those of you who haven't will learn why she keeps being invited back. She's an excellent writer, even though she was telling me she's a bit of an English eccentric in her worldview and attitudes about life, somewhat um, delightfully so, I would say. And uh, she has <coughs> a rich academic background, beginning at the College of William and Mary, where she earned her undergraduate degree and eventually went to the University of Utah and got her doctorate at the University of Wisconsin. She wrote a dissertation on Virginia Indians and has pursued that interest ever since. So it seems to be endlessly fascinating. And here's where it kind of got interesting for me. She started um, at teaching at Old Dominion University in 1968 and was there for the next 31 and a half years starting out, as she told me, in a condemned building uh, where her office was located. And then she went off to get her, her terminal degree, her doctorate. And when she came back, she had graduated into a, an office made of cardboard. <laughs> so she's come a long way to be here in the Virginia Historical Society Auditorium today. She's a cultural anthropologist, and as we heard, some of us heard this morning, she has done field work on a number of the tribes and has visited most of the Indian reservations in the United States. She's a past president of the American Society of Ethno-History, and in 1995 won the State Council 
on Higher Education's Outstanding Faculty Award. She's written several books and will be happy to talk to you afterwards and sign copies that you may want to purchase. So please welcome Dr. Helen Roundtree, who will speak to us on the topic before it was Virginia setting the scene. Dr. Roundtree. Maybe been, have been invited more than anybody else, but it's because I usually talk about her who shall be nameless today. <laughs> I don't plan to mention any individuals today. I was asked to talk about people in the land, and I'm going to stay to the subject. My students used to complain. I stuck to the subject. <laughs> Drove them nuts. The Indian attitude to the land here, before all the invaders came, including my ancestors, the Indian attitude to the land was probably complex, but there was one element of it that shines through in some of the early accounts, and that is, the entire region is useful as is. <laughs> I want to explain why and how that was possible. We need to start off with a couple of basic premises, which we may know intellectually, but emotionally it's going to be harder to grasp. At times it is even for me now. Indians were rational people. They did things for reasons. They didn't do things to be exotic. They were rational people who observed, who memorized what they observed, and then used it well. And in my studies in the last four decades, I've come to appreciate deeply just how much is involved. I think the women in particular had minds like computers and the men weren't far behind. <laughs> I'm not being sexist, I'm being factual. The men had... <laughs> I'm supposed to talk about the land, remember? The men had to know their territory too, but not in the same, not the same species, not as many species, and they had to learn animal behavior and what they brought into the family food budget was based upon that. It wasn't a matter of memorizing plants like a modern botanist. So if the men were behind, it's only in a relative sense, and it's not meant to be sexist. Division of labor, remember. All right. These were people living in a world where there were no draft animals. These aren't much use for that. <laughs> Neither are deer or elk. You can tame them, but you can't domesticate them worth a flip. And if you haven't got domesticated animals, you're not going to have wheeled vehicles. There's no reason for them. And also, for regional reasons, they had no iron tools, much less steel ones. No wheeled transport. Instead, if you wanted to haul a lot of people for a lot of distance, you had to use canoes. And the canoes being log dugouts, not birch bark, that's much farther north where you actually get the right kind of birch. These were very heavy canoes, and it meant a lot of hard work. And I've expounded upon that before. When you don't have iron or steel tools, it means that you've got to make your tools that can do less drastic alterations to the earth. Wood, shell, bone, etc. 
So you got a, a technology then that even when the people applied themselves was not going to do anything like as spectacular or drastic as the Europeans were able to do right from 1607, let alone now, where they wanted to get trade, and especially distant trade, it was very often done on foot through a network of trails. Uh, I was not able to reconstruct all that many in eastern Virginia, sorry. I've told a lot of our older country roads run along those trails, but in the general region, it's easier to see. But since we're talking about long distance, most of it on foot, we're also talking then about relatively lightweight luxury goods. So when people wanted ordinary everyday technology, they had to get to work and make their own locally. Their own immediate environment had to supply them. You don't send off to China for something. The cultivated crops that they had were also limited in their usefulness. If you have a good year, it's wonderful. However, if you have got a dry year, worse yet, a drought, these non-native crops, especially corn, are going to produce poorly or not at all. And through dendrochronology, we've been able to reconstruct, and then that's my own calibration, by the way, uh, which years were good years and which were bad years. And there were quite a few good years, but there were also some perfectly rotten ones and if the corn crop fails and the beans and the squash aren't all that much good, you're going to have to make up the difference. This had to be done by using wild resources. And that meant in turn, here come the ladies, you have to know where exactly they are, what plants are useful for what, and at what season, and on and on and on. And that's where a computer like memory really helps. So both sexes, men for hunting, obviously, but also the women, had to know their territories thoroughly. Now, in these territories, which the people were learning thoroughly, this gives you some idea of what language groups and major tribal entities there were when the English arrived. And you can see which ones are coastal plain. Uh, I've got the boundaries shown in hills with the boundary with the Piedmont and then the mountains. All of these people had to know their territories really, really thoroughly. And except for the boundary between the Piedmont and the coastal plain, between the Powhatans and the Monacans, Monahoics, most of these people were in a reasonably peaceful state. The Piedmont coastal plain was a hostile boundary. Uh, north and south of it seems to have been friendly most of the time. But even that wasn't going to make for specialization, I grow this crop, you grow that crop. It wasn't going to make for a lot of everyday trade. And even... Oops, I want to go back too. Come on, back, there we are. Even then, limited numbers of things that people would even be interested in. And of course, the chiefs wound up wearing most of it. All right. This whole region that we're talking about, although most of my landscape slides are going to be in eastern Virginia, that's where I've mostly worked, and almost all the landscape's going to be my own phot photography. The people who were living there were aware that the nature of streams changed. You've generally got relatively narrow, fast-moving ones in the Piedmont and the mountain region, which means that if you want to construct a fish trap, I tried in vain to tell this to the Hampton History Museum, if you're going to set a trap up on a river like that, it needs to be relatively narrow. You make a stone fence that will at least keep in the bigger fish, 
and then down at the apex you put in a nice reed container. Uh, they are in fact about eight feet. Uh, museum directors love them. They are not, repeat, not relevant to the coastal plain, much less to Hampton. Can you think of a trap like that being built across Hampton Roads? <laughs> On the coastal plain, especially the outer coastal plain, you have got these wide, wide estuaries, which are useful for other things, but among other things, the kinds of fish traps you find are going to be entirely different. Uh, John White got it partially right, Debray got it corrected, you can see one on the upper left there, except that those heart-shaped bays really ought to be at the end of the fence, not branched off from it. When they reinvented fish pounds like this, this is what they came up with. This has a one or two sets of bays. Up on the Potomac, there were more like three sets of bays. Very efficient way, though, with these traps to catch fish for months on end. It's a passive way to get plenty of fish for supper. But they were a lot of work because you've got limited technology to build them. In the old days, you would have had some stakes and some reed bundles or maybe some bundles of cedar bough and any storm, doesn't take a hurricane, could take it out. So the men were constantly doing repair work. And for this, you don't need a memory like a computer. <coughs> in the waterways, especially in the eastern part of Virginia, Maryland, and North Carolina, you've got varying salinities, which in turn will make for varying kinds of shellfish. Oysters are salt water by preference. Hard clams, ditto. But there are freshwater clams that are quite useful, including margaritifera, margaritifera, which produces occasionally pearls, freshwater pearls. They are not real common in Virginia. If you want to get lots of pearls from that kind of clam, you need to go up uh, a little Schuylkill River or northward nowadays. But you can see that as you go farther away from the mouth of the bay and also up into higher ground, the waters are fresher. And there you can get other things like really useful marsh plants that I will return to. But there's a lot of variety, lots of variety, and it all produces stuff that can be used. This shows you the major shellfish areas. This, by the way, comes from the National Park Service cartographer's uh, drawings that were originally made for the John Smith Chesapeake Voyages book. And when UVA Press saw them, they said, oh, too colorful, <laughs> we lose prestige. And they published the book with really <laughs> yucky colors. In my lectures, I still use John Wolfe's original maps. Thank you very much. But this shows you where the fish are, where the oysters and the clams are. And by the way, the oysters and the hard, water, hard shell clams used to go up higher. Seawater was lower, and intuitively we'd think that the salt water, therefore, would be lower up, coming up lower in the rivers. Didn't work that way. The land had not yet been so much paved over and roofed over with houses there was much less runoff from the rains that fell, and that pushed fresh water farther down the rivers. Makes sense, but initially it sounds counterintuitive. So the sea level was lower, but the rivers were actually somewhat fresher than they are now. Okay. This is one of the useful marsh plants that you can get. If you are in fresh water or very, very, very slightly salt water, this is the plant that John Smith dubbed Tuckahoe. Probably the Indian word, which means roughly something to be pounded up, applied to several species. But this is the one that John Smith described being prepared. This is Arrow Arum, Peltandra virginica. 
And it does, it's raw, it's no better than poison. Smith was right. I tasted some of it fresh and it was just like a bee sting. You can get anaphylactic shock from it. Nasty stuff. But it does make very useful tubers. We'll talk about them again in a moment. Okay. The dark green area indicates where Tuckahoe is able to grow if the bottom is right in these various rivers and streams and where it's particularly rich, either in Tuckahoe or another root that does not taste like a bee sting, yellow cow lily, instead it tastes like a sewer, <laughs> or wild rice, which does occur all through the eastern woodlands, not just in Ojibwe area where they get it commercially where you see these stars, you've got what I call bread basket marshes. They are the marshes that you want to have in your territory if the corn crop fails. You make your bread out of what these things produce instead. Seeds of wild rice, tubers of arrow arum and cow lily, and you can keep your family going. And funny thing, notice there are more Indian settlements. I didn't include the populations of them, but they also heavier population per town upriver rather than down by the bay. And you find that all the way around the Chesapeake Bay Rim. It's interesting, fun to track out, only took me 10 years. Varying topography of land. Not only that, there's also, there's also going to be a lot of variation in soil, which I come to in a moment, but variable topography also means then that wherever you can get a floodplain rather than hills. This is Jamestown Island. That's that crummy looking kind of olive green watery looking place that's so good for mosquitoes, still is. But just inland from it, you can see some lighter yellow and that's good farmland. In fact, some of it is actually part of the James River flood plan, plain and has some naturally fertile soil. Wonderful for corn. So the land itself is going to vary. Ancient floodplains, I marked them out on this map. I still don't really like the map. What I want is something in 3D in color, but I hand drew it, so it's got its limitations. And I'm also talking about salinity there. Ignore the big black stuff. But there are floodplains all up and down the rivers, and that is where you're likely to find the best corn-growing soil and also the flatter soil that you want if you're gonna have a farm. It's less likely to erode. So Indian people could be picky. They had really good reason. The women had apparently some very definite ideas about what would make a good corn crop. So do modern scientists, funny thing. And do they correlate? Well, I checked with the scientists. I actually did go and talk to some soil scientists, but among other things, I went into soil maps county by county by county, have done it for Delaware, coastal plain of Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina, just out of curiosity. And I didn't just do it on general soil types, which my colleague Randy Turner did in his dissertation and found, yeah, it correlates. I found that sometimes very specific soils, number 298, this is not in color, but 298 down by the, the word Purton Bay, is one particular kind of soil, the best that's available locally. And funny thing, that's the site of where Wakamako, where Powhatan lived. Oh, I promised I wouldn't mention individuals. <laughs> you can actually pin it down by specific soil type. In this case, I think I remember it is uh, state sandy loam. Farther up the river is Pamunkey loam, which is fantastic, and it is the state soil now. All right, this is what the Indian women found. 
We know where they were doing their farming, thanks to dear old Schmidt. And if you take river valleys and then correlate them with kinds of soil, that's the Rappahannock River, bingo. Look how many of the towns are by the yellow soils. It's about an 80% correlation on the Rappahannock River. It correlates. I waited 10 years to find that out. <laughs> and it was worth it. Yep. Good stuff. And the Indian women knew it first. Of course, they'd had 600 years of trial and error, and 600 years is quite enough for experimenting. But it worked. It worked. Now, at our latitude, on our coastal plain, and certainly in the Piedmont and the Ridge and Valley province, we tend to have mixed deciduous hardwood forest. Neat stuff. We don't tend to go to pine barrens. I understand that the extent of pine barrens in prehistoric Virginia is under dispute. There are academic catfights about it, and I haven't even looked into those. But the vast majority of parts of the, Virginia, at least, were predominantly hardwood forests mixed in with pine. I attended a seminar at the University of Georgia for a summer with archaeologists back in 89 and found that they were thinking entirely differently from me. I grew up, well, I'm a coastal Virginian, of course, and uh, the good people live in the coastal plain and po' folks got to Piedmont. <laughs> you know that kind of attitude, don't you? Whether you give it or receive it. It's the opposite from Carolina on around through Georgia, Alabama, and into Mississippi. It's the opposite for the Indians, at least. Because where you've got so many pine forests, it is less productive of food like nuts that deer and other critters love so much. There was less good hunting. The soils were more poorly drained. It can be very, very flat. And that can be bad for farming. And the richer prehistoric Indian societies, usually called the mound builders, the Mississippian complex, these were all Piedmont and mountain people. And I heard that down in Georgia, and I went into culture shock. I said, bunch of foreigners? <laughs> but where we are, you've got mixed deciduous forests. Oftentimes, it comes right smack down to just near the Chesapeake Bay, within a mile or so of it. You could, I've driven all over these peninsulas. And it's good hunting territory because it's good deer producing territory all through these necks until you get right close down to the saltwater area. And of course, I live in the saltwater area and it's cruddy. But it's great. It's also rich in plant foods if your domesticates like corn, beans, and squash happen to come from Mesoamerica rather than here. And the rainfall in Mexico City, where I also lived for a summer, is quite different from here. It was wet all summer long. Maybe semi-desert, but it was, it was scattered out. I kept getting damp. And that's not the case here. We have a bad summer, about one in three summers. And sometimes they clump up. So you want a lot of wild plants. Wild plants. When I started messing with wild plants, reading botanical manuals, and then pestering botanists. I found that there were about 1,100 native wild species in the coastal plain of Virginia, almost as many in the Piedmont, that people could get edible parts from if they were willing to do that much work. You can narrow it down to about 100, requiring only a moderate amount of work, and you can live quite well. The major ones I'm showing 
are in, I don't know if you can read it at this distance, it's, it's a real busy picture, sorry, but I put that in a book where I knew people were going to have to use a magnifying glass anyway. <laughs> the uplands with deciduous forests, there are things you can get in there all year long, and there are also some seasonal ones. Whenever the nutting season is, this is also a major hunting season. You hunt the animals that eat the nuts, and then you eat the nuts instead. It's quite simple. But there are all kinds of things. And most of the medicinal stuff that I found that I could be pretty sure the Powhatans in the coastal plain used were also deciduous forest, but that's because I had to get my more recent Indian information from Cherokee and Iroquois sources, and they don't live on the Virginia coastal plain. Different kind of place where they live. Anyway, lots of stuff you can get deciduous forest. You can also, on the lower terrace, if you're not raising corn and beans in a little plot of land, if you're letting it go fallow, it produces all kinds of useful things. In the first two years, that's where you go to get the plants to make cordage. You can't go to Walmart and buy string. You make your own. And you go to last year's field for the plants that produces it. Mainly milkweed, common milkweed, and uh, Indian hemp. Then, an area we don't usually think of as being useful, but it was essential to the Indians, is this freshwater marsh. And I'm showing you the Peltandra virginica plant there on the marsh. There are other things also. If you're really hungry, you eat marsh periwinkles and get some protein. You also get a lot of shell, but you expel that out the other end. And then, of course, the waterways themselves with all kinds of wild, wildfowl, fish, shellfish, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the more freshwater marsh you've got and the more estuaries you've got, especially shallow ones, the better off you are. That's the major reason why the rich folks was in the coastal plain in Indian times. They were able to get lots of stuff from the land and also lots of stuff from the water. All ecozones got used. Oh, I've go back a minute, to the business of the plants. These are some of the plants, and they're only some of the plants that are useful with a bit less work. But you have to memorize what they look like at various seasons as the women and the girls traveled about. You're always looking at where things are. I watch for Indian hemp plants myself. They grow on the farm where I live. And I'm always watching to see where they were this year, where they might be next year. But you also want to know exactly when is the best time to go get them. And I'm learning the hard way about Indian hemp. You want to get it during the hurricane season. The latter part of the hurricane season is best. Learn where they grow. Learn the season to use them in. And then how you actually prepare them is something else you've got to do. And I'm no good at making string yet. But stream valleys made up tribal territories for the obvious reason. Everything in the valley, including the marshes, was useful. In a marsh like this, this is on part of Jamestown Island, it is not a fully freshwater marsh. It's got a little too much salt in it for Peltandra virginica, but look at those reeds. If you're going to use reeds to make mats and mats to make houses, you're going to wind up going into those marshes, mucky though it is. So you want all sorts of things. All ecozones got used for something. Uh, the ecozone with the least use, ironically, back then was beaches. You can't get food on them, but you can put off a canoe from them if you have to, and if it's usually around beaches or if, even little pocket beaches that you start your fence out, your hedging, 
to make a fish trap in the estuaries. So you use beach for traveling through, if nothing else. But marshes are useful. English didn't understand this. Ironically, in parts of England, of course, they were, and they still do, raise exactly that species, Phragmites, Phragmites communis, uh, for thatching houses. But the settlers who came over here were thinking, oh, they can't sell any reeds. Definitely swamps. Swamps were extremely useful. The English were going to call them deserts. To the Indians, this is where you might find a breadbasket. There are higher grounds that will have trees, including some oaks, which will make some acorns, which in turn will attract some deer. And in the waters themselves, it's, you can see a turtle in there. I think it's actually a marsh plant, but I'm going to call it a turtle. Uh, this is where if you want to eat terrapin for supper, it's exactly where you go. You go to a swamp. This is a major reason why swamps became refuge areas for Indians. There are often high enough grounds, just high enough within them, hammocks, where you can clear some trees and actually do a little farming. It's why Indian refugee communities oftentimes wound up there after the whites had taken all of their waterfront land. You go to a swamp, and Whitey's not going to want the swamp. And until he learns to drain it, you're safe. Parting shots. Parting shots. This kind of use of all ecological zones, largely from necessity, aided by great ingenuity and wonderful memories. No iPods, no computers to help. This kind of thing meant certain things for Indian life, which the English very, very often misunderstood. All mothers were working mothers. They all had to go out of the town to get the stuff they were supposed to come back and process. Daddy did not gather reeds in the marshes. Daddy did not dig tuckahoe. Daddy had other things he was supposed to be doing. So the women and girls were coming and going all the time. And the house building was apparently women's work. The saplings had to be gotten. You have to go where you get the right species of tree. Ironwood's one of the best, Carpenter's Carolina. As you've got to go out and get a lot of them, so you're going to be out in the woods quite a while, and then you've got to hump them back, giddy yap moth. And as for the reeds for the mats, that's, and the cordage to tie it all together, that's self-explanatory. And the women would have to go out in the marshes for that. By canoe. Canoes were not toys for overgrown boys. Both sexes had to use canoes. And that brings me to the next thing. Canoes were the family station wagons and U-Haul trucks. Both sexes had to know how to use them. And using one was something you always had to do with other people because the blasted things were so heavy. Dugout, log dugout canoes were used all through Virginia, up in the mountains too. And it took at least four people to move a good sized one. If it was one that was really something like 50 feet long, you wanted at least eight people paddling. I've done a small canoe with only two and it was blue murder. Absolutely murder. Also, the waterways, which became the highways for Indians, would remain the highways for the invaders from the Old World, who were all accustomed to using boats as well. And that obtained until a lot of the country roads were paved in the 1930s. So that was a matter of continuity of attitude. But as for how you use ecozones, I need to stick to the subject. Another thing it meant was that the two sexes didn't look alike. The men on the average were taller 
than the women by about four inches. Average Indian height in prehistoric times, late woodland times, seems to have been about five foot seven, uh, five foot three for English. The women averaged about five foot two, but they were probably built like piano movers. Digging Tuckahoe will make you that way. And that is a very mild form, as we found out later, of a way you dig Tuckahoe. If you're really going to dig enough to feed a family, you're going to sit down at the plant with several other people. It's multiple people. And you are going to pry at the thing with pry bars, and you're going to get filthy. This is just after a Tuckahoe digging expedition. And you can see the, the tubers in the bucket there. I never found a woman who was willing to undertake it. I didn't for long. I pleaded increasing old age and found some grunts. <laughs> and they said they hurt for a long time thereafter. Okay, very hard work. Women's work, yeah. The women would be built like piano movers. The men, I've, I've told the banner lecture people this before, the men who did so much literal running you don't always bring down a deer with the first arrow. You got to chase the sucker down. And when you are going to war or more effectively coming back with somebody trailing you, you're going to be running. The men tended to be built like cross-country runners. They were not built like gym rats or football players or weightlifters. Uh, they had to do a lot of long-distance endurance running. Because of Tuckahoe, this is what the inside of a tuba looks like. And because <laughs> Eric's hands were so roughened from use, he was the, the head honcho in the Indian village at Jamestown Settlement in those years, he didn't feel it at all. When I touched that thing, any part of it, my hands burned. Terrible stuff. It takes a lot of processing. But the thing is, you're able to get it year round. And you memorize where it is when the leaves are up, you can spot where it has been, even during the winter time. This is a, a Tuckahoe bed in Halfway Creek. I took it illegally from the Colonial Parkway Bridge without getting caught <laughs> in the winter. Anything for science. But there's all kinds of riches of food down there if you know how to prepare the tubers once you get them. That meant in turn, historians take note, that anybody with this kind of resources in the breadbasket marshes was going to be impossible to starve out. So when I read accounts from late 1622 that the colonists are starving and so are the Indians, I don't believe that last part. They could still gather Tuckahoe and they could live very nicely, thank you. And then when spring came, the English better look out. Because of that also, and their knowledge of how to use swamps, and the upper parts of rivers that the English mainly did not want, you can get quite a lot of survival of Indian-descended communities. It actually shows up best on the Maryland Eastern Shore, which is why I use this map. I haven't worked it out fully in Virginia to my own satisfaction because a lot of the, the people would no longer bear tribal names. And there are enclaves all over Eastern Virginia. But you can see where the reservations were allowed by Maryland to survive. The people were surviving, and they were still mostly waterfront. Quite a few of them were living well up those rivers, and they had access not so much to meandering rivers as to swamps, especially Eskimo-Nikansan reservations, 1678 to post-1746. Uh, you've got to be able to live in a, the Pocomoke Swamp to survive there. There's not much Tuckahoe even now. I've checked with the guy who's canoed all over it. 
and he knows his plants. <laughs> PhD botany, he better. You've got to live in a swamp. And they did for a long time. And some of their descendants are still not very far away. I've been in email, connect, uh, email communication with one of them within the past week. So you get a lot of people surviving, more than we usually realize. And where the people get to choose the place for their reservation, as the Pamunkeys of Virginia did, you can figure out why they did it for ecological reasons. Osamkitek, right there in the middle, uh, the place where that points is the modern-day Pamunkey Indian Reservation. It has never been owned by anybody but Indians. The Pamunkeys of 1701 chose what land to keep. Why did they choose it? Maybe because it was fairly easily defensible. There might have been something to it. But look at those wonderful red stars just across the river. They were still going after the stuff in breadbasket marshes. If the corn crop failed, the local King William whites and blacks might be doing real poorly the next winter. The Indians would still be doing just fine, thank you. And therefore, you can expect, these are just the recognized tribes that I work with, you can expect that there will be plenty of Indians still. The refuge areas they were able to go to, and they used resources that the white competition didn't want, enabled them to change their culture slowly at their own pace. It doesn't mean it wasn't painful. The culture change is painful. We're all living through that now. But they were able to adapt and survive, and they're still here. Thank you. Any questions, pertinent or im? What was the food preparation with that stuff? Were they making it into a bread? Was it a big mush? What was it? They did both. Yeah, they did both. It makes only a moderately good flour. My chef friend, who was the, the dirty one on the left side, found that even with a Cuisinart, he couldn't get it into smooth flour the way you can with corn. But you, from there, you can make it into a mush. What's recorded is that they made it into bread. By the way, uh, I don't know whether it's going to be book number nine or number 10 for me. I am co-authoring a book with my sister, who is a PhD nutritionist, recently retired. And we are going to reconstruct the Powhatan diet and the nutritional aspects of it, including what various kinds of preparation would have done. Yeah, we've just finished a five-week course on it for uh, the senior citizens' lifetime learning at CNU and Newport News. And she's collecting what she wants to boil down. I'm, I'm ready to write. <laughs> I usually am. In your uh, studies around 1600, were you ever able to make an estimate of how many native peoples there were in Virginia? Estimate, yes. An estimate I have a lot of faith in, no. <laughs> nobody, and I mean nobody, including on the other side of the pond, was taking censuses of people at that point in time. It wasn't considered government's business. So all we have of the Indians is John Smith's warrior counts, as they called. Uh, he and his superiors wanted to know how many able-bodied males would be able to shoot at them 
if they came visiting. And that's not much to make an estimate from, but the best we can do with that estimates was something under 10,000 people for the Virginia Coastal Plain. That's a much smaller population. And when you couple that with using less drastic technology and also using a lot more uh, eco niches rather than really focusing in and destroying a, a few, you've got people who did live much more gently on the land but less than 10,000 people probably. To the English it appeared empty and they often wrote accordingly, which is how much they knew. I believe the gentleman down here in the, who's got the mic? Go ahead. Oh, sorry, I'll get to you next, sir. In back with the mic uh, and then bring it down here for him, please. I have heard that the Indians used fire um, and improve their hunting that way, and therefore the woods look quite different from uh, the way they do now. Could you comment on that? They did look different from what they do now, but not for that reason. There has been controversy, I'm being polite, about how extensive the fire hunting was. And nobody really knows. Until somebody invents a time machine, we're not going to know. But. We've got a certain amount of opening up of woods from fire hunting, a certain amount from hurricanes blowing trees down, a certain amount from lightning strikes starting fires, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it may not have ever amounted to very much. The major thing that would have struck you and me if we got in the time machine and went back was the fact that up away from the rivers, we're going to be seeing mature deciduous forest with much, much less underbrush in it because of that. And that is why John Smith was able to write, you can ride a horse anyway between the trees. By the way, I disagree with Father Andrew White up in Maryland. He says you could drive a coach in four. That's overdoing it. <laughs> so the major difference in the forest back then would have been the way the, the, the ground looked rather than how many open spaces. But yes, it would still look very heavily forested to you and me in any case, compared to what we're used to now. What can you tell us about the terrible scourge of coastal Indians in both North and South America on the East Coast occurred from the onslaught of European diseases to which the Indians had no resistance? I get this question every time, and it's several doctoral dissertations. I'm going to answer only for Virginia, all right? We have only one record, one, in 1617, of the Indians here being hit by any kind of epidemic, and it appears to have been bloody flux, not smallpox. I asked uh, Alfred Crosby, who wrote The Columbian Connection and some of those others, what his opinion would be, was, was it going to be 90% as uh, Hank Dobbins used to say? And he said no, and I said that agrees with the historical records I've seen. The reason is that the Indian population here was not only small, less than 10,000 people, but they lived in small hamlets and at two different seasons of the year, they dispersed from those hamlets. And nature could clean the place up if you want a 90% loss of population, you've got to look to a city, and there were no cities in Aboriginal Virginia. There may have been 90% loss of population in some Inca cities, but not out in the countryside where the villages were and still are smaller, and not generally in North America. 
It's only when people get so concentrated. And the big epidemics of smallpox you hear about were all in Indian refuge communities where they had been concentrated and there were too many people who could not move around enough. So nothing like the mortality in North America that people are often given to think. Yell. Uh, <laughs> Go um, on, Charlie, yell. <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 it's interesting you're using soils maps to determine the ecological zones in which uh, native peoples were living. I did the same thing in my dissertation for sweet-scented tobacco. But when I looked at the map that you had, which is based on the Smith map of the Rappahannock and the location of tribes, want to hazard a guess as to why there are more tribes on the north shore of the Rappahannock than the south? I agree with Frank, no, sorry, it's Morris Mook who remarked on it back in the 1940s. And he said that there were probably political reasons for it. The tribes on the Rappahannock were under pressure from Powhatan to join his organization. They had done so at least officially, but if they wanted to make independent decisions because they were getting contacted by more northerly peoples, they didn't want Powhatan to have such an easy time zapping them. And it didn't make any sense for the Rappahannock River tribes, villages, to be on the, the north end of the northern neck when Powhatan's on the south side of it. He can send warriors and zap you right quick. If you're on the north side, you can see him coming. Does that help? I didn't point that out. Somebody beat me to it. <laughs> Charlie. Um, you mentioned milkweed and dogbane or Indian hemp. Um, yucca, yucca filamentosa. I believe it's native to eastern sandy areas. Say it louder. The yucca filamentosa. It, it does grow on sandy soil, yes. Yeah, I believe it's, uh, you mentioned two cordage items. They're the, they're the two I know best, and they were also, they've been found in archaeological sites all over the eastern woodlands. Yucca less so, as I understand it. Yeah, yeah. An alternative is the inner bark of the red cedar, Juniperus virginiana, although I don't think it has as much tensile strength as the other. I haven't really tested this. If I ever genuinely retire, which will be in the next millennium, I think, uh, I want to try these all out and le just learn how to make them. Any other questions? Uh, thank you for being here, Dr. Roundtree. I happen to uh, have come from the county that has the only two reservations in the state. And I find it very interesting that uh, it once again proves that no good deed goes unpunished because the uh, natives are what allowed us to survive and history always reflects those who write it. Thank you. When I write a book about Indian history, if I catch it from both the Indians and the non-Indians, I figure I'm probably being accurate. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, what is your feeling about the current controversy over whether or not Native Americans arrived 20,000 years ago? And if, if you think they did, or whenever you think they came, how long did they live in these coastal areas? Can you answer that? You're asking a cultural anthropologist who is not an archaeologist. <laughs> yeah. 
I have no problem with people arriving in North America during any interglacial or during any interstadial. Uh, I've committed myself on National Public Radio a few years ago when they on a show with Jim Axtell from William and Mary, and they said, where was the first Thanksgiving, in Massachusetts or Virginia? And I said, neither one. It was in Alaska 30,000 years ago. <laughs> People is going to walk where people sees food. <laughs> and the Bering Strait, then being grassland, albeit cold grassland with plenty of critters on it, people were going to come across it any chance they got. So they would have arrived over here in North America. Where they went after that, that's what I don't commit myself to. We are positive that there were people here in Virginia for the Cactus Hill site, which is 16,500 years ago. 17 now, okay, 17,000 years ago. And that's a heck of a long time, friends. That's 15,000 BC. It was during the Ice Age when things were quite different. And I, I've been to Cactus Hill and I see those artifacts as authentic. So people have been here. It doesn't bother me a whit. But then you see, I'm not a fundamentalist Christian, I'm a whiskey palian. <laughs> a Darwinist, so I've got no problem with long spaces of time. And I think the Indians have been here a real long time. Since you brought up the Ice Age, um, I was doing a tour in my museum, the Fredericksburg Area Museum, and you helped to develop the um, Indian portion of our exhibit there. But I was giving a tour and somebody said um, on the tour that the early Indians had interacted and hunted woolly mammoths. I had not heard that before. Um, but since you talk about the Ice Age, is that true, that the very earliest Indians would yes. have? Yes. Woolly mammoths, mastodons more likely. Yeah, they did. They existed here. There were people here. Naturally, they hunted them. Yeah, it's, you've got to go way back in time to the Ice Age, but if you have people back there, yeah, yes, they hunted those. They didn't do it recently. <laughs> Have I worn you out? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Thank you for coming. <laughs>